Okay, let's look in 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3. And we're going to get uh, today um, some lessons here from really it's centered around one word in the first verse about Solomon, and that is Solomon's affinity. That means like his alliance, his association. So we're going to learn about Solomon's affinities, and in particular, one affinity, one affiliation that he has. 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, we'll read it. In just a moment, I'll let you get there. First Kings 3, verses 1 through 4. It says, And Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter, and brought her into the city of David, until he had made an end of building his own house, and the house of the Lord, and the wall of Jerusalem round about. Only the people sacrificed in high places, because there was no house built unto the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and burnt incense in high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place, and a thousand offerings, a thousand burnt offerings, did Solomon offer upon that altar. All right, I'm going to pray for us again. Lord, thank you for your words. And in, in the, the, this event is removed from us uh, several, many hundred years, but we still want to learn from you. And please teach us what this timeless book with this incident means for us today and uh, help us to take heed and of it and learn from you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so I want to talk about Solomon a little bit. It was good we, last week, we, again, we're looking at a couple weeks ago, we we're talking about old age and David and everything and, <clears throat> and David transitioning uh, his kingdom to Solomon and the challenges he had in old age. And then when Solomon became a king, we talked about how he had to immediately right some wrongs and take care of business because there was certain people that would be an immediate threat to his, to his rule, and they would cause disturbance uh, in that country and to him and to the people. And so, you know, this guy he had to take care of, and that guy he had to take care of, and that guy, and really bring down, uh, bring down the hammer and force the law. Uh, put certain people away. And so he, he acted wisely in doing that. He, what is the last verse? It says, I think, the word established three, four times in, in chapter 2. But at the end of chapter 2, the last sentence, and the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. And so chapter 2 records how Solomon uh, uh, you know, very shrewdly dealt with people and got his administration established and stable. And the lesson for us is, you know, we, it's one thing to have responsibility. It's one thing to have something given to us and say, I'm a dad, I'm a mom, I'm a manager, I'm a whatever, a business owner. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing to have it settled and established and stable. And that's kind of the application point that we had. But here, Solomon is acting wisely in the previous chapter, and he will act wisely later. But you get a few moments where it's like, this isn't wise. And this, right now he does something that's really not wise, is his affinity. We'll talk about that in a minute. 
I want you to imagine with me here a comparison. <clears throat> Think <clears throat> on this side, Christ, on my right hand, <clears throat> and on this side, my left hand, Solomon. And it is absolutely true that Solomon is, is really a good picture of Christ, a, a shadow, a picture, a, 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 you know, a certain you know, example of Christ in many ways. And I'll give you a few examples. Solomon, is, as far as we can tell, certainly at this point, Solomon's kingdom and his leadership up to this point in Israel was more glorious than anybody before him in Israel. And it was probably more glorious than any of the kings after him. He had a very glory. It became a very glorious kingdom. I mean, incredibly rich. I mean, they said silver was like, what did they say? It was like rocks. It was incredibly wealthy. Um, and, 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 and just his, his array, his court, the temple, his house. I mean, it was bling, bling. It was first class, everything. It was a glorious temple. That's Jesus. It will be the height of glory when Jesus comes in his kingdom on earth. And then even the heavenly city will be incredible. I mean, it'll be glorious. Solomon's just a shadow of that. He's a picture of that. <clears throat> Another thing of Solomon on my left hand here thinking, he immediately, when he comes to his kingdom, he, again, as we've mentioned, he immediately writes, starts writing the wrongs. He starts addressing the wrongs and gets things under control. And that's what Jesus does. When he comes to his kingdom, when he comes to earth at Armageddon and, and certainly soon after that and the years after that, he makes things right. Let's take care of the, these, these armies of the Antichrist, the beast, and the battle of Armageddon and slay his enemies and stain his garments with their blood and bury those bodies and get uh, Jerusalem established. And they even, there is going to even be a millennial temple of some sort, which is interesting. And... And Jesus gets things under control in such a way that even the nature of normally wild and poisonous beasts is reversed. And it's glorious in that way. So Solomon gets things under control. Jesus will certainly get things under control and right the wrongs. Um, and then another thing about Solomon, is, isn't this neat? If you've read ahead about Solomon, <clears throat> he was an international attraction Right? How was he in an inter international attraction, Solomon? Many people came to visit him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. They wanted to ask him questions. It was like he was the Google of the... Nobody else had a Google uh, access. Hey, Solomon, uh, how many different species of birds? You know, I don't know. It was something like that. He had all this wisdom. Right? People were coming from around the world. All the earth. I think it is in um, one of the chapters here. Let me see, I think it might be chapter 11. Anyways, it says, oh, there it is, chapter 10, verse 24. All the earth sought to Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. Not only that, they would bring, this guy's, how come people give stuff to wealthy people? I mean, he's already incredibly wealthy and they give him more stuff. That made him go from billionaire to what would be trillionaire. He would be a trillionaire nowadays. They did a study on that and figured he'd be a trillionaire. So anyways, well, here's the point. Everybody around the world was seeking after him. There came a story of the Queen of Sheba coming, and she was just blown away by it. Everybody wanted to go, I, we want to go meet Solomon. It was, a, it was a cool thing. It was a peaceful thing. It was like, wow, look at his servants. Look at his house. Look at his temple. Look at all the gold. Look at how come everybody's happy. The servants in my government aren't happy. You guys are all happy. Look at the orchard, orchards he plants and the... 
you know, and then the Queen of Sheba was just blown away. And then everybody else had come in, and there were ships coming in, and apes and peacocks and all kinds of animals, like a zoo there. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff happening. And people were like, let's go see something. It was just a glorious attraction. And that's how Jesus is. He should be today to those whose heart are toward God, that they'll see Jesus, and that's who I need. But in the millennium, the world's going to come to Jerusalem. There's going to be this transportation of, let's go up to the house of the Lord to worship Jesus. If you study the, if you study the scriptures about the millennium, there's, there's attraction to go to Jerusalem to see Jesus. And that's Solomon. Now, he's a picture of that. Now, Solomon is a picture of Jesus. He's a shadow of Jesus. But not every shadow stays perfect very long, right? Even a real shadow, you know, it distorts after a while, doesn't it? And the shadow of Solomon gets distorted here as you begin in chapter 3, verse 1, where he begins to just, he's starting to collect wives. <laughs> and not just collect wives, <clears throat> He's collecting some pagan wives. That means they're unsaved. It's not even that they're non-racially Jewish. It wasn't a racial thing. It was a faith thing. And so that is where Solomon, you're not looking like Jesus anymore, Solomon. Because Jesus, thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ, and I just want to say a few more things and then we'll get into the particulars of the text. The Lord Jesus will have one wife, right? His Only those who've... Faith is in him, we're his bride. He will be fully devoted to her. Solomon had many wives, and you can't be fully devoted to one if you have many. Um, Jesus will have one wife. He will be fully devoted to her. He's fully devoted to us, isn't he? Individually and collectively as his bride. And he will not permit worship. He will not permit her or endorse her worship of anybody else. Solomon had many wives. And he permitted them to worship other things and even brought him on board in it at the end of his life. So just a little overview there of Solomon, because I think it's justifiable for us to pause and think, what is this Bible? What does this text have to do with Jesus? Well, he's a shadow of it, but he's an imperfect one. He's a picture, but it's a marred picture in some places. All right, so let's learn about his affinity and then kind of draw a few particular lessons. We're going to look at his affinity and his affection, and then we're going to learn a few things here in particular about it for us. Verse 1, Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh the king of Egypt and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem round about. Now let's just say a few things about this. So what it's saying is, the first thing, it's describing something he did good earlier in the chapter. Now it says, he starts to make this uh, alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Okay, and it wasn't just any kind of alliance. It's not like, hey, let's have some fair diplomatic relations. Affinity is actually a word, a word used uh, that I found three times. The Hebrew word, Resty referred to one of it earlier in Nehemiah, and we'll pop, we might look at it later, where some of the Jews did the same thing. They, they made uh, marriage uh, affiliations with the ites of the land. And they, they became like those other nations through the marriages that they partook of in non-Jews, non-Jews of, who weren't of, the people who weren't of faith. And so that was called an affinity. Um, 
And, and then there's other places in Deuteronomy where it refers to it. Here's what an affinity is. Not infinity, but affinity. It means like affiliation, a, a alliance. But it's in a very strong way. Here's what it means. It means a marriage for strategic political purposes. This was a marriage for a strategic political purpose. You know, sometimes they've, it's been done in, in years. Think about history. Think about kings. I, I was even reading a little bit about the kings queens for um, England and Great Britain. Um, and there are, you, it's complex, really. The family, oh, see, by the way, this is weird. It's like, what's Prince, what's that dude's last name anyways? Prince William. Like, what's that guy's last name? What's Harry's last name? I'm like, I couldn't even figure it out. And I looked it up, and it's like, oh, uh, it's actually, it's like this long hyphenated something, something, and, but he prefers to be Duke of whatever and Prince of this. And you're going, oh, you guys are confusing me. I got a last name. Do so you get one like me, okay? So <clears throat> you can research that later. It's kind of weird. But what I found is, is you, here's what I'm saying. If you look at like the, I was looking at their genealogy. If you go back to the genealogy of a lot of kings, what they do is they try to like, they try to connect families for, with another king, like Spain or France, like a, a prince might marry a, a princess in France. You know, they'll try to do that. And it's, there's, it's political. You know why? Because the king's like, man, I never want to go to war with France. My kid likes his, her, uh, his kid, my son likes his daughter, and they seem, hey, you good with it? Yeah, I'm good with it. All right, all right, let's marry. And you know what that does? It reduces the chance of going to war. <laughs> you got to, if your daughter-in-law's the, if your daughter-in-law's dad is the king of France, you're less likely to go fight with him. And if your uh, uh, daughter's, uh, if your son-in-law's the, uh, the son of the king of England, you're less likely to fight with him. So there was a, it was just a political thing. And maybe sometimes it's okay to do that. The issue is faith. It's not so much the politics. It's how they have the same faith. But so Solomon, <clears throat> he gets cozy with Pharaoh, which is one thing. But then he makes an affinity. In other words, he wants to make sure he secures peace with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, because he doesn't want to risk having Egypt ever invade or ever threaten Israel. So he marries Pharaoh's daughter. He marries her for political advantage. And Pharaoh goes along with it. Maybe he was glad for it. Maybe they, look, let's be honest. This, forgetting about being a Christian sounds like a good idea, right? Seems like a good, makes good political sense, right? Hey, we're not going to, we're probably not going to fight, are we? You know, I'll send you some Jewish food every now and then. You send me some of your uh, Egyptian food as long as it's kosher. You know, we'll, we'll trade Christmas cards, or no, not really, but you know, it sounds like a good idea. But sometimes things that make secular sense and political sense don't always make spiritual sense. We got to remember that. I'm not saying everything that seems to be a good idea is bad. I'm just saying whatever a good idea floats across your your uh, life, like wait a minute, okay, it sounds good, but wait, is there anything in Scripture? Is it vi ever violate God's wisdom? If it ever violates God's wisdom, then I don't care if everybody's doing it. That's how we should look at it. So here's this affinity. He he makes this tie, this alliance with Pharaoh, and, and, and here's what it means. He's got a wife. and he's gonna, He already has, if you do a lot of research, he already has a wife by this time. And he's going to collect a lot more. But he's got a wife that's not of faith. Look what it says. <clears throat> She's not of faith. It says, he took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her in the city of David. 
Now, the city of David is not the whole Jerusalem. It's a, it's a section of Jerusalem. It's, I think it's like the southwest area of Jerusalem, Mount Zion. It used to be a fort for the Jebusites, and David took that fort and said, that's my house now, Mount Zion, and it's a section of Jerusalem. So he takes Pharaoh's daughter, it says, brought her into the city of David. That's the area where David was already living. This would be Solomon's dad. Until, so she had some kind of temporary housing until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem round about. So the idea here is like he brings her into this Jerusalem. She's not a person of this faith. He's like, well, we're going to, once we get our, once we get the temple done and my house done, we're going to let her have her own place. And that's what he did. He built her another house in another place. So he's conscious of the fact that this isn't even right. He knows that, like, it's almost like by the time you get this glorious temple, let's say that, by the time you get this glorious temple done, it's like, well, it's almost like you're not, you shouldn't be here because of the temple. It would be like there's this uncomfortable sense. So he already knew she's not going to be able to live here very long. Probably he knew that the people wouldn't put up with it. I don't, I don't, I don't know all the details, but, but, the, but you see that he knew that it wasn't fitting. But Solomon does, does this. It seems to make political sense. But it had, here's the thing. Ah, watch this. Some things that seem like, that's a great idea. Let's do that right now. Uh, it, does it violate Scripture? Uh-huh, probably does, but it just seems like it's a good idea. Some things that seem like it's a great idea, and everybody's doing it, and it works. But it, you're like, this does contradict Scripture. Watch out, because I really think it doesn't work then. See, sometimes people say, well, don't be pragmatic. I think being bi- biblical is the most pragmatic you can be. This is true pragmatism, is following the Bible, because in the long term, it works. In the long term, God's word works. In the short term, man's pragmatism is short-lived. So this is a pragmatic thing in man's eyes. Like, oh, this works. But I'm telling you, long-term consequences were coming for him. For this starting to have her, and then he took other wives and other wives and other wives, and we're going to see what that did. Let's look in. First, we're going to look in Deuteronomy 7. Uh, let's look at something here. Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 6. Now, I hate, I don't like doing this because I feel like I don't want to be like the armchair quarterback and I'm nitpicking Solomon because, quite frankly, I wouldn't have wanted his job. That would be a hard job. And I hope that I wouldn't have been given in to, to compromise like this. But here's the point. Violating very plainly Scripture, and I want you to see it, Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 6. <clears throat> now, the, the kind of the takeaway, if you're like reading all this, the takeaway is don't marry an unsaved person. Okay, that's the big takeaway. Don't marry an unsaved person. If you do, Paul says, stay with them and try to work it out the best you can, but don't ever try it. Don't ever start that way marrying an unsaved person because it has consequences. Deuteronomy 7, when the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land, whether thou goest, goest to possess it and hath cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. When the Lord thy God shall deliver them, I'm in verse 2, before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Verse 3, neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter 
shalt thou take unto thy son. Why? For he gives a practical reason. For they will turn away thy son, the person of faith, from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and, and shall and destroy you thee suddenly. Verse 5, but thus shall you deal with them. You shall destroy their altars, break down their images, cut down their groves, burn their graven images, and every, destroy every semblance of their false worship. Verse 6, Hawaii, here's another reason why to do all that. God he installs some reasons. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. And, and so we'll stop right there. So God's saying, hey, Israel, this is before they came into the land after roaming in the wilderness. When you go into the land, here's the deal. These ites, by the way, these ites had time. They heard about Israel. They had, I think there was a sense where they had a chance to believe. Some of them did, like uh, Rahab the harlot. But he says, when you go in there, it's uh, scorched earth. That's what it is. Utterly destroy everything, and anybody that survives, you don't make marriages with them. Because if you make marriages... They're going to win you over. You won't win them over in the marriage. It's easier to pull somebody down from a pedestal than lift them up. He says, don't make marriages with them. And again, utterly destroy all their semblances of their false worship. It's a false worship and there's demonism behind it. Utterly destroy all of it. Why? Because you are different. You are special people, set apart, particular people, unique above all the people of the earth. So what Solomon does in this one aspect here is he ends up marrying a person who's not of faith. He violated God's word here. Nehemiah, go to Nehemiah 13. Uh, Rusty read some of this today. Nehemiah 13. And again, what we're doing is we're comparing God's word with Solomon's actions. And now we're actually getting an Old Testament commentary on Solomon from, from Nehemiah himself. All right, uh, Nehemiah 13. Now, remember, uh, this place in history... The children of Israel had come back out of captivity and they're kind of getting themselves reestablished in the land. And because they had been previously doing these compromises and marrying pagans and false worship. And so God punished them. He sent them into captivity. And now they're just now starting to return. Nehemiah comes on the scene helping them build walls. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're marrying false believers again. Pagans again. Time out. And Rusty kind of described it. I mean, Nehemiah's going crazy. I mean, he's beating up on his family. He's like pulling beards and stuff like that. I mean, this, is, this seems kind of, kind of a... Anyways, let's look at it. Look in Nehemiah 13. He says, 23, In those days I also I saw Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, Nehemiah 13, 23, and of Ammon and of Moab, and their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. And I contended with them and cursed them and smote certain of them and plucked off their hair and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons for, for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these? Yet among many nations there was no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause to sin." Shall we then hearken unto you to do all this great evil, to transgress against our God in marrying uh, strange wives? What Nehemiah is saying is he's going, his fellow countrymen, now he's not, <clears throat> he's saying, I stop this, stop taking pagan wives. You know, one of our best kings ever 
was taken down. It was his Achilles heel when he was mesmerized by outlandish women and started taking them in, and it was his downfall. You think you're better than Solomon, guys? You're not. Don't do this. And so there was, a, there was an aspect of <clears throat> who we align ourselves with in marriage is important. Who we align ourselves with in business is important. Who we align, and I mean like, I'm not talking about like, oh, I know about you. I'm, I have a, an affiliation in a loose sense. I'm talking about close business ties, close relationships, a marriage, a contract of some sort. Watch out. Let's just stop. Let's just consider that's a major point right now in our discussion tonight. We have to be careful who we contract with, who we align with. We don't want to be Pharisees like I don't, you know, I don't affiliate in any level with him. No, we're talking about something tying tight. I knew a guy when my dad and I had a shop. We would do there was we call it a jobber. It's a, it's a, it's like a. Um, like a, a place where you buy your materials, you know, you, um, brother guy, you probably got a place where you get most of your, or a couple places you get a lot of your material for pools and Rusty, maybe some of his supplies. Well, we had a couple different places that we would get our paint supplies or sandpaper, some tools. That was our job. Or one of the guys <clears throat> was a little closer to our shop. I, I, his name slips. I think it was, I think it may have been Tim. I can't remember his name. It might have been his name, but he, he and another guy started a business. And I can't remember the name of the business, but it was basically, you know, where we get our supplies among another place. And so we went there and we get supplies, and it was a pretty decent price. And, <clears throat> and after a while, I remember getting to know him, uh, this man, a little bit, and he, he was a Christian. And he gave me testimony of salvation and everything like that, and I thought, oh, that's pretty good. And then, <clears throat> and then after a while... I remember him, I was like, well, what do you do? He goes, I actually have a business partner. And I never saw, I don't think I ever saw his business partner. He goes, we're both kind of co-owners in this thing. And uh, I was like, all right. <clears throat> and he said, uh, and then after another year or so, he was kind of, I don't know how long the business went total, but they kind of were having some struggles. The business was struggling. And, and I got to talking to him, Tim, one time a little more deeply. And, and it basically, my understanding, conception of it was that it was basically a conflict in values. I don't know on what level, but there was, a, there, was a, there was a kind of a butting of heads, a conflict of values. One is not a believer. One is a believer, and they are tied contractually in this business. And it became a problem, and that place dissolved. I don't know who got the benefit out of that dissolution, if it was an even split, but it dissolved. And I thought, I, from, the, from my distance, I wasn't deep in on the, the gears of that business, but from my distance, I thought, it looks like you just have two unequal yoke. You have an unequal yoke. And look, <clears throat> that doesn't mean you're not allowed to have an unsaved manager. I'm not saying stuff like that. People in the Bible went through that. But when you start tying yourself in a closer sense of having the affinity, the close tie, that's when it can be consequential. And Solomon has this in marriage <clears throat> and, it, and it has a short-term benefit, but long-term consequences. Look in 1 Kings 11. <clears throat> 1 Kings 11 here. This, what this, this is the long-term consequence. Again, what does he do? It's not bad that he marries an Egyptian. Nothing wrong with somebody that looks or sounds a little different to you. It's bad that he married a person who was not clearly a person of faith. That was the problem. 1 Kings chapter 11. <clears throat> Let's look at this. <clears throat> This is kind of, I think, one of the last chapters that we'll look in was about Solomon. 
eventually. But King Solomon, chapter one, 11, verse 1, loved, loved many strange women. It wasn't just one. Together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, of, nation, of the nations concerning which the Lord had said unto the children of Israel, you shall not go in unto them, into them, neither shall they come in unto you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. I mean, it's saying he was, he was all in. Look, he had a flavor. Solomon had a flavor, an international flavor. He was the kind of guy that liked to, he knew all countries. He probably knew all kinds of foods. He knew all kinds of stuff, but he should only know one kind of wife. And one wife, really. A person of faith. But he knows all kinds of flavors of wives, too. And so he clave unto these in love. Verse 3, this is almost unbelievable. He had 700 wives, princesses. That means, if I understand it right, they were related to, again, this is a pragmatic thing, those 700 were related to some other king or ruler, which immediately brought about some peace. 700 wives, princesses, and then 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. Verse 4, For it came to pass when Solomon was old, <clears throat> that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Verse 5, For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Malcolm, Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, and Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord as did uh, David his father. And then did Solomon, now watch this, this is almost unbelievable here. Verse 7, then did Solomon build in high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. Likewise, likewise did he for all his strange wives which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. Now, again, this is a, it's one of the most perplexing, there's a couple of perplexing things about Solomon, is the fact that he is so cool, man. He's so wise and neat, and he builds that temple, and you can see he's earnest and sincere in his love for the Lord, but it kind of, it, it, the bad part kind of comes out towards the end, where it's like he kind of caves into all these wives, and fine, let's build a, 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 a high place for Moloch and for all these other crazy false gods. And he, and he allows that to be built. He, it's because it started with this unscriptural alliance that he started with. Again, we got to watch out. Who are my relationships? Do I have safe relationships? I mean close ones. Ask yourself. Do I have safe, close relationships? Are they safe? Are they, are they have a, tie, a healthy faith tie in them? Ask yourself that. I mean, that's where we're at today. I don't think any of us are in danger of marrying 700 wives, you know, or things like that. But we might be in danger of just tying tight, getting too cozy with somebody who does not have God's values or contracting business-wise with somebody who does not have God's values. <clears throat> anyway, so there's Solomon there, his affiliation, pardon me, his affinity. And, uh, but now let's look at his affection. Now we can't hide, we can't ignore this either. This is early on. It says these things in verse 3. Well, verse 2 says, Only the people sacrificed in high places because there was no house built into the name of the Lord until those days. There's kind of a mixed take on that. Some people think it was just outright idolatry. 
Others think that they were actually sacrificing to the Lord, but they were in these formerly pagan places. Um, but until the temple was built, once the temple was built, it kind of coalesced everybody to go to one place. But let's look at verse 3. This is what I want you to see. It says Solomon loved the Lord. Walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and burnt incense in high places. Now verse 3 is saying something good about him, even though he made this initial compromise. It's recognizing that at this point he still loves the Lord. But the first compromise in verse 3 of marrying the daughter of Pharaoh is going to catch up with him later on. And that love of the Lord that's mentioned is going to be traded off for all because of... In other words, I don't know how to say this. Eventually, our, our affiliations will affect our affection to God. That's why it's like I don't want to have good affiliations to feed my affection toward God. I don't want to have affiliations and ties that are going to eventually reduce my affection toward God. So again, Solomon, oh yeah, oh yeah, he's got this feral wife and maybe a couple others, but he loves the Lord. That's what the Bible said. But we saw at the end, 1 Kings 11, it was like reversed. It was like he doesn't, he just stopped. He didn't go fully like David, his father. He didn't go the whole route. Even David tripped a few times, but David finished it with a definite love for God. And so, wow. Solomon, his affection, he did love the Lord. God recognizes his legitimate affection, sees it as valuable and compliments it. Yet because of his affinity to take on pagan wives and the fact that it continued, it reduced his affection for the Lord and turned away his heart. So let's ask ourselves, what are our affinities? What are my sympathies toward? What are my attractions toward? What am I bent toward? What's my predisposition? What's my tendencies? And then I want to just say a couple things here. <clears throat> Um, this, by the way, this is interesting. Um, uh, God, it's almost like sometimes you don't notice. Sometimes we sow a really bad seed early in life and we don't see the bad fruit of it till later. He's sowing the seed of this bad, of this relationship and it really just comes to fruition later. So that's why kids, I mean, that's why kids' parents are always so like on you, like, watch what you're doing, you know, your friends, who are you going to marry? Because we're like, you're sowing seeds. <laughs> and we want to help you make good decisions early on because we know you're going to reap stuff later. So here's what I want to do. Three takeaways here in particular. Let's make, as I've already said, equal yokes, especially in marriage. Marry equal yoke. Um, <clears throat> I've seen this happen, and, you know, I, some girl has a guy that likes her, and if he's not definitely saved, it needs to be just keep a distance and keep a, some kind of safe friendliness and not let it develop romantically until this person has a definite conversion. Same thing with a guy, you know. Um, a guy finds, man, she's a knockout. She's... Whatever, you know, all that. Okay. She'll knock you out if she's, you know, in your faith, <laughs> if she doesn't come on board too. It's just you want to have an equal yoke in marriage because <clears throat> as it says, Solomon and the Lord said, they will turn away your heart. Uh, of course, there's cases where, look, I know people, probably in our church, I could, if I started thinking enough, they married, one was saved, one was not, and eventually... 
there were struggles and eventually the spouse became a Christian. It doesn't happen as much though. And God can be gracious. That can happen. Sometimes two people are both unsaved and they get married and one becomes a Christian later. And Paul referred to that. He says, hey, if you're a Christian and you have an unsaved, <clears throat> don't leave the unsaved spouse. God's, you know, called you to peace. But if they depart from you, let them depart. I mean, God is, you know, you're not in bondage in such cases. It's almost like, well, I couldn't do anything about it. But then I think it was Paul or Peter, one of them says, you know, if you do have a, if you're saved and you have an unsaved spouse, you can still have an effect on them. And you can, through, <clears throat> you can have an effect seeing your kids saved and you can still have influence on them <clears throat> and pray and hope that they could be saved. But let's start out, marry equal yoke. That's what we learned from Solomon's affinity. Number two, <clears throat> um, or number two, let's never let common wisdom contradict God's wisdom. I've already said that. Let's never let common wisdom contradict God's wisdom. Now, again, I say common wisdom because there's some things that are just wise. It's kind of common sense, you know, to do <clears throat> that you might not find in the Bible, you know. Uh, but, I, um, but, <clears throat> but if something seems to be common wisdom, like, for example, Solomon, hey, I'm going to marry the, the Pharaoh's daughter. Hey, if all the other nations do that, they seem to do okay. But if it contradicts God's wisdom, then it doesn't matter. And so that's, let's have that in our thoughts. Let common wisdom contradict God's wisdom. That's why we need to be in God's Word. And I'm glad for church, this church. I think we've got Bible readers in this church. And if you want to keep your, if you want to keep, make sure that the church keeps going straight, let's keep being Bible readers and, and people and men and women of prayer. That'll help keep us right, keep us straight, and, and discern the pastor. You never know, I might teach something false, you know? Uh, not that I want to, but I'm saying we need to have Bible, we need to be in the Word, etc. But let know God's wisdom so that <clears throat> if we, somebody else comes along with some, you know, their wisdom and it contradicts God's, we can discern it. And then number three, let's have, and I, this is not like real dominant in the text, but I want to say it. Let's have distinct worship style. <clears throat> let's have distinct worship style. See, what's happening in some of this stuff here? is that um, Solomon is going to build a temple. He's going to, later on, he's going to build a temple. He's going to build it exactly like God said to. And they're going to start going to it. <clears throat> but what they're doing now is, what they're doing is they're like, well, let's just go to, um, you know, they used to go up on the high place. And they would, they went on the high places where the former pagans were on the hills. There was, there was these little open air sanctuaries before Israel came to the land, there's these open-air sanctuaries up on the hills and they, these groves, and they, they did all kinds of weird stuff up there, you know? I don't I know. I keep thinking of the Stonehenge-type stuff. I don't know. They're doing stuff, you know, maybe that's what we should do. And they were doing stuff on the high places. I don't even know if they were actually doing sacrifices to God on the high places. or I don't know, but they were, they were kind of shadowing the world's worship. And Solomon, it, it seems like he did that for a while. He certainly caved back into it, caved into it later with his wives, where they just went fully on board with their worship style of false gods. But God, if we have a distinct and unique God, you know, my, my worship to him should be distinct. My lifestyle for him should be distinct. <clears throat> you know, um, you know, we, we've talked about this. We we try to have the best music we can, and I think we can always improve. And I'm not in, I'm not against new music. It just needs to be new music. That's right. And I'm not against more instruments. This needs to be instruments that are done well and right. In fact, we'd like to have more. And and uh, 
But sometimes you see things happening in, in churches like, what is this? Why is it? This is one thing. Why is everything getting darker? There's a style of let's darken. Let's, dark, let's dark it out. I'm like, can you brighten this? But turn on the lights. It's like all dim. It's dim in the back. It's dim in the lights. Maybe a few purple things like it was a Van Halen concert or Megadeth something concert. I don't know. You know, in the 80s, and like, and you're going, why is that? What? What? What is that? That doesn't even seem like it reflects the God of light and a God who's distinct and the God who needs, you know, that is worthy of glory. So I guess what I'm saying is we want to have worship that's distinct, that's Christ-honoring, and not necessarily shadow everything that the world does and learn from the state. You know, we go to, people go to concerts. They go to secular concerts of uh, some pop group or some rap group or some country group or some whatever group, and, and so they, they, they get into that, and they're like, you know, we're going to kind of shadow that when we go to church, and, and they kind of shadow that style and that thing at church. And we don't have to do that. We don't have to do that. We should just do something that's basic and simple and beautiful, beautiful for Jesus. Because Israel was learning their ways, and they were going after their worship. And uh, Solomon, of course, it affected him at a deeper level because of, his, because of his wife. So our affinity, learning from Solomon's affinity. What is my affinities? What are my affinities? What are my alliances? Take heed to them. And again, I, again I'll say it again. I want anything in my life that I could do, whether it's a friend, whether it's music, whether it's a book, whether it's a movie, whatever it is, I want as much as I can, and all you teenagers should see, as much as I can that's going to make me a better, my affection, uh, richer for Jesus and not diluted from Jesus. I want to love Jesus much more than some pop singer or much more than some uh, secular person or, or, or whatever, or some athlete I'm in. I want to, whatever's going to increase my love for Jesus is what I want. And grow in my love for Him. That's what we want because that's what matters and that's, what, that's all that's going to matter in the end. 